I want to take some time this evening to talk about what I really believe is the heart of Christmas. And I mentioned briefly this morning that I had a lot of questions about Christmas when I first became a Christian because I had been raised with all the Christmas traditions, but, but I also had been raised in another uh, Christian tradition, another Christian context, where there were a lot of things taught related to Christmas, some of them very good, some of them maybe not so much. And, and so I had to sort all through that in my mind and really reach a conclusion. What, what is the heart of the Christmas message and story? What, what is that about? And so I want to talk to you tonight for a few minutes about the miracle of the virgin birth. And, um, and I don't think we talk about this very often in, uh, in church, and I don't see any super young ones here. Well, in the back. And um, so when they ask questions, y'all, when they ask questions about what Pastor was talking about tonight, see Dustin. <laughs> and he can help you out, right? Okay. Uh, you know, the, when, I, when I first entered ministry, uh, there were a lot of discussions taking place about whether or not the Bible was truly inspired by God, and whether the supernatural descriptions in the text could be taken as history, and could be taken as reliable. And that was a real debate, even in Southern Baptist uh, academic circles. There was, there was a lot of discussion about that. And, and so, uh, there was a whole history that led up to that. The Enlightenment in the late 18th century caused a whole generation of academics to question the validity of Scripture and, to, and tended to treat all religion as superstition and as man-made. And that skepticism left a lot of preachers in a place of how do I communicate God's Word when so much of it is supernatural. And, and some preachers and Bible teachers compromised and began to explain away those parts of Scripture that were deemed so irrational and didn't seem to have any kind of logical foundation. They would try to explain it away. And in doing that, they were just beginning to gut the Scripture of the supernatural teaching or events that took place there. And, and this went on throughout the seven, late 1700s, 1800s. And by the end of the 1800s, you had people who, if you really wanted to study the Bible and to do it in the most academic way, you left the United States and you went and studied in Europe, particularly in Germany. And, and they were teaching all kinds of theories about the Bible, that the authorship of most of the books was incorrect, and that some of the books were just outright fabrications. But, and, and so they were undermining, again, the historical nature of Scripture. And a lot of those guys would come back and teach in schools in the U.S. And so by the early 1900s, they called it modernity or, or modernism. And they were in seminary after seminary after seminary. And so denominations began saying, we don't like that because what was coming out of the seminary was so contrary to what was being taught in the local church. Or a pastor coming from a seminary would come to a church and begin to teach the things he learned in the classroom. And, and denominations were dividing and splitting. You'd have uh, 
the Presbyterian denomination is probably one of the best examples. You had just a whole succession of splits as each group splitting off tried to be more conservative and more correct than the group that they left. And this eventually began to affect Southern Baptists um, with the teaching particularly of a man named Ru uh, Karl Barth and Rudolf Bultmann. There was this effort to recover the Scripture without accepting the supernatural foundation of Scripture. Uh, to take it seriously without really taking those things seriously. And I don't know how you do that, but that was the attempt, that was the effort that was being made. What was really interesting in, in the um, 19... 10, from 1908 to about 1912, there were 64 conservative Bible teachers and professors that wrote a series of articles that were finally published, collected together, and published, and they were called the Fundamentals. And the Fundamentals were mailed out nearly to every pastor in the United States. And this, this effort, three million volumes that were sent free to pastors and professors, were paid for anonymously by a man that we now know as Lyman Stewart, who founded uh, Union Oil of California, Unical, and eventually helped found the Baptist Institute of Los Angeles, or the Biola University, it's called now, and he funded that. And, and so all these pastors got these very conservative teachings, and there were five basic fundamentals. One was the biblical inspiration uh, that God inspired the Scripture, that it's free of error, that's infallible where it speaks, and uh, that was one. The virgin birth was one. Now, you can tell by what they emphasized what was being attacked in the, in the schools. The virgin birth, um, the penal substitutionary atonement, meaning that when Jesus died on the cross, he was being punished for our sins, and he was our substitute for our sins. And, and that was being denied in a lot of places. So that just didn't seem like uh, something God would do. The bodily resurrection of Christ was the fourth fundamental, and the fifth one are the miracles, the historic miracles described in Scripture, and hence the term fundamentalist was born. Now, fundamentalist today doesn't have a good connotation for a lot of people. Um, there were, no, without a doubt, examples of people who were fighting fundamentalists and um, who, who were so combative in their approach that they just turned a lot of people off, people weren't listening to them. But in the strictest sense of the word, uh, in terms of what I teach, it would be classified probably as fundamentalist, uh, conservative, Bible teaching. And in the sense that I adhere to those five fundamentals, I accept them. I believe them to be true. And so much of what went on in Southern Baptist life 20 and 30 years ago was focused on recovering those fundamentals into the academic environment of our seminaries and making sure that that uh, they were taught and accepted. So, why do we talk about the virgin birth? Uh, just, we could, we could chase so many rabbits with this, and I, I really, uh, I, I like chasing rabbits, but in Philippians chapter 2, this is not on the screen, but just, just listen. Philippians 2 verse 5, Let this mind be in you, Paul writes, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. 
And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And, and, and it says that who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. I want you to hear something else. I love this description here. This is just this is beautiful. The very beginning, opening verses of the book of Hebrews. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. There is no question that, that the Bible understands Jesus to have been God before he was born, took on human form and became flesh, and then purged our sins, died on the cross for us, and was raised and sits now at the right hand of the Father. The Bible, the Bible teaches that. There's, there's no question about that. Whether you believe it or not is another question, but that's what the Bible says. The question is, how did that happen? How did it happen that God became man? The other question, and I don't know that we'll, we'll tackle this tonight, but why did he do it? But the first question is, how did he do it? How did God, who created everything, become a creature? How did God become man? Well, to answer that question, there, there are two very significant passages of Scripture. And so, as we think about the miracle of the virgin birth, we're talking about how God became man. The miracle of the virgin birth. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 23... Um, only one of these verses is on the screen, but it says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Why was he thinking about divorcing her or putting her away secretly? Because she was pregnant and he wasn't the father. But while he thought about these things, this verse is on the screen, while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. That's the miracle of the virgin birth. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet 700 years earlier by Isaiah, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So in the verses that follow that section, Matthew 1, 18 to 23, in verses 24 and 25, it stresses that Joseph did not know her. 
But they did go on to have at least four sons and two daughters after Jesus was born. James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. You can read Matthew 13 and Mark 6 to see that Jesus had half-brothers and at least two sisters. They're not named. So Joseph wasn't the father. Joseph believed that what was conceived in her was of the Holy Spirit. He believed that because an angel told him. Do we believe that? In Luke chapter 1, the passage tucked in between the sections we looked at this morning. It's tucked right in the middle of that. The angel said to her, appeared to Mary, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And then it says in verse 34 on the screen, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One is to be born, will be called the Son of God. And so how did God become man? Because there was this woman. And the Holy Spirit did a miracle inside of her. And the baby Jesus was conceived. Now, briefly, what the virgin birth is not. What the virgin birth is not. I just want to say a few things about this. The virgin birth is not to be confused with other miraculous births in the Bible where God overcame barrenness. They're two separate things. Barrenness is when someone's not able to have a child, and when God overcame that in the Scripture, couples that experience barrenness, and I believe this is true to this day, y'all, that God has a very special purpose for that couple because his normal plan, obviously, is that a couple has children. When they're unable to have children, God has a very special purpose for them. And we see that in Scripture again and again and again. It might be for a miraculous conception, not, not a Holy Spirit conception, but a miraculous conception, or it may be for some other purpose. But Abraham and Sarah conceived a child at an old age. We see that in Genesis 21. Hannah was barren, and she cried out to God, and she gave birth to Samuel, 1 Samuel 1. Rachel was unable to son, and she had a miraculous son, Joseph, in Genesis 30. Elizabeth bore John the Baptist. Remember, she was really old. Okay? So, so the virgin birth is not that. The virgin birth is not God enabling a woman who physically is past her ability or unable to conceive. It is not the miracle where God enabled her body to do something it wasn't able to do before. This is something that doesn't involve a father. This is something that is entirely different and entirely new. The virgin birth is also not to be confused with the mythical claims that are a result of fantasies of superstitious worshipers and other religions. And you encounter that. For example, Buddha, Buddha was said to have been inserted into a queen. Uh, there are all kinds of mythological stories where there are similar conceptions of a supernatural birth. And the virgin birth shouldn't be confused with that because of the writings of Luke and the testimony of the people who lived at the time 
and the remarkable things that, that were said about that event, the people who were eyewitnesses, who testified, who were aware of what took place. But at the end of the discussion, it's something you and I have to accept by faith. It's not to be confused with the ecclesiastical dogma of the Immaculate Conception. You say, Pastor, are you attacking another denomination? No, I'm not. I'm explaining something. I want to explain the difference. Um, there's a difference between dogma and doctrine. Dogma is what a church says you must believe. Doctrine is teachings derived from the Scripture. The church will say, if the church says you must believe this, whether it's in the Bible or not, you must believe this, that's called dogma. Technically, that, that's a technical term. It's dogma. Doctrine has its roots in Scripture. We should believe what the Bible teaches. And you don't have to take my word that something is true. And that's one of the things I love about Baptist when I was 17 years old and I asked a preacher about it and he said well we just try to do and say what we find in the Bible and I thought that was amazing I got so excited about that then I found out not all Baptists would do that but I was so thrilled the Immaculate Conception is not any has nothing to do with the virgin birth the Immaculate Conception is the belief that Mary in her conception, when she was born, was conceived without sin. And so the beliefs and teachings around Mary in some Christian traditions is very different than the kind of picture that we have developed in the Scripture. There are a lot of misconceptions about the Virgin Mary. I believe we should respect her. I believe we should talk more about her than we do. I believe we should teach about the virgin birth. But not once in the Bible does it say we are to worship her. Not once in the Bible does it say that she is perfect or sinless. And it was the effort of ancient uh, minds to try to figure out how could a sinful woman have a sinless child. And so, well, she must have been conceived immaculately. Well, what about her mom and dad? You know, where does it stop? She, the Bible never says she was perfect or sinless. In fact, if you read carefully, when she does the Magnificat, in, when Elizabeth and her meet, and she gives this song that's called the Magnificat, she says, and Mary said, Luke 1, and Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Well, if you're sin-free, you don't need a Savior. But she calls God her Savior, and she knew she needed one. And so it does not say she was God. She was not a co-redemptrix who, who also was involved in the redemption of mankind from their sins. It doesn't say we're to venerate her. In fact, what is really special about Mary is her plain ordinariness. She was an ordinary woman. She was special. She loved the Lord but she was pretty much an ordinary person, but God used her in an extraordinary way. So those are some things that the virgin birth is not. Let me talk about what the virgin birth is. A couple things about the virgin birth. First, it's required to fulfill biblical prophecy. There are prophecies that were, were uttered 700 years before the birth of Jesus 
that describe a virgin birth. Now, one of the things you'll notice about the prophecies I'm going to point out to you is that they often have a dual meaning and fulfillment, twofold. One, that was immediate, there was an immediate application, and two, there was a future application. And this, this happens many times with the prophets in the Old Testament. There's an immediate application and fulfillment, and then a future one. And that's certainly true in this case. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, uh, we have this beautiful expression of Jesus. It says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. So this is someone who is born, and the government will be upon his shoulder, so he's going to be a ruler, he's going to have authority, and his name will be called Wonderful. And that wonderful doesn't mean like, Jeff, I think you're wonderful. I mean, it's not that kind of wonderful. Wonder as in, in terms of miracles, wonders, signs and wonders, wonders, miracleful. He's wonderful. Counselor, and I do think you're wonderful, Jeff. Don't. Count, counselor, mighty God. So there's someone who's born who's also called mighty God, everlasting Father, eternal Father, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so in Isaiah 9, verse 6, 700 years before the birth of Jesus, it's describing someone who is born on one hand and who is God on the other. In these prophecies, some will argue, particularly with this verse, Isaiah 7, 14, that, that the word virgin here doesn't mean virgin. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew picked up on that verse and said that that's what was happening when Mary conceived Jesus supernaturally by the Holy Spirit. The immediate application was Ahaz the king was being threatened by a military invasion, and Isaiah was speaking to him assurance. And he was saying, There's this woman, she's a virgin right now, and she's gonna give birth. So uh, basically the re resolution of Ahaz's problem with these enemies is going to go away because there's a woman, she's going to have a, a child, and, and when that child gets to a certain age, the problem goes away. That was the immediate fulfillment. We don't know who that woman was, and it wasn't a virgin birth, it's just at the time that this was spoken, she was a virgin. But then Matthew, when the virgin birth occurs in the life of Jesus, he goes and reaches for this prophecy and he applies it to Jesus. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. That's in the Matthew's gospel, and we accept that as the word of God. And Matthew's taking this and applying it to Jesus' birth. Now, there are Bible scholars and teachers who say that the word virgin here, Alma, means a chaste young woman and can be translated either young woman or virgin. And yet, everywhere this word is used in the Old Testament, it always has the meaning of a woman who has not known a man, a virgin. More significantly, when the Old Testament, by the earliest translators, took it from Hebrew and translated it into Greek. The Greek translation of the Old Testament is called the Septuagint. It was the Old Testament used by a lot of Jews in the days of Jesus, by a lot of Greek-speaking Jews throughout the Roman Empire. When they took this verse and translated the word virgin, they used the Greek word parthenos. Parthenos which means virgin, a woman who has not known a man. So the opposition 
to the biblical necessity of a virgin birth is more out of logic and, and rationalism, rejection of supernatural things. And that's where most of the opposition tends to come. Well, not only is it required to fulfill biblical prophecy, but the virgin birth is required for your salvation and for mine. Only a sinless Savior can redeem mankind. And for God to save mankind, human, humanity, two things had to happen. In order for humanity to be saved, God had to become like man. That's what we read in Philippians chapter 2. God had to do that. Why? Because the sacrifice we read about Zacharias this morning, before he could go in and pray before a holy God, a sinless, as perfect as possible lamb had to be slaughtered and its blood shed. Again and again and again and again. If you read the book of Hebrews, what you discover is that the Lord Jesus is the sinless, perfect sacrifice. He is the lamb without blemish. And so in order for humanity to pay for their sins, a human being had to die for those sins. And God was the only one who was sinless. He's the only one who could take our place, who could become human and then pay the ultimate price that our sins deserved. And so the virgin birth, to deny the virgin birth, to say, oh, it doesn't matter who his daddy was, is to say, is to to strike at the very root of how we believe God saves us by sending his son to become a human being to die in our place. And so... It's required for salvation. Now, final question. What difference does it make who his father was? I've already touched on this, but what difference does it make? Well, we already read the verse, but in Matthew one twenty one, the angel says to Joseph, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Why him and no one else? Matthew's not leaving any question about the origin of Jesus. Matthew's making it perfectly clear that that his existence was a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And to deny that is to strike at the very explanation of Christmas in a single verse, Matthew 1.21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. That's the heart of Christmas. This baby who was born was no ordinary human being. His daddy did not walk on earth. His father was God himself. And it was a miracle, truly a miracle. When Matthew reached back and said that they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us, there's no contradiction here. It says you're to name him Jesus, but it says they will call him Emmanuel. Uh, they is not the family. They is not Joseph. They is not Mary. They is everybody else will say Emmanuel. Why? Because it means God with us. And so we can explain Christmas in one sentence. If Jesus was not born this way, he, wouldn't, he could not save his people from their sins. And that's the very heart of Matthew one twenty one. For he will save his people from their sins. 
Do you know this Jesus? We celebrate Christmas. We have fun with Santa Claus and trees and great food and family gatherings and family traditions, and we enjoy all of those things. But do you know that the heart of Christmas is this miracle of the virgin birth of Jesus who came so that he might save you and me from our sins.